Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell. And I'm Liz Crow. And we're just back from the fabulous Smack conference in Dublin. And we thought we'd take this opportunity to try and bring you some of the tips and pearls from the communication workshop that was led by Liz and Steve Philpott on the first day of the conference. Yes, we obviously don't have time to go through the whole workshop, which goes for an entire day. But what we thought we'd do is just bring out the major tips or points that might be helpful for you when you're communicating, not just with patients, but with your colleagues and even in your personal life. I was really lucky to be able to go to this workshop. I was there ostensibly as faculty, although that seemed to just turn into me overacting later on in the morning and in the afternoon. But I picked up some really, really interesting tips from being part of the group that were there. And I heartily recommend this workshop to you if you're able to make it to Berlin for the Mac conference next year. Liz, the thing that I found most interesting at the start was this idea that we really need to be more aware of who we are and how we communicate before we worry about how others communicate with us. Most people, when they think about communication, they just think about talking. And really, our whole communication style is driven by our personality and what we actually think about communicating and when it's important to communicate and how we communicate. So the first whole section of our workshop in the morning really focuses on personality traits, things that are important to you when you're communicating, which often people have never reflected on. Now, some of those personality traits to me seem moderately obvious, the difference between extroverts and introverts, but you do go into it in more depth. I think people think, you know, you're either a quiet person or you're an outgoing person, but it's really much more than that. Introverts really gain their energy from spending time on their own, having times to contemplate and reflect what's going on, and having some period of time, I guess, to reflect on where they're going to go. Whereas extroverts often can speak very quickly, they come up with ideas very fast without actually thinking through the bigger picture. They get their energy from other people. So how that relates to communication is if you were thinking of something like a ward round, the extroverts might be very quick to jump in to offer an opinion, whether it's a diagnosis or something about the family, whereas the introverts might take a little bit time to work through what they think is important to communicate. And that can be frustrating for both parties. One wants to take the other time, the other one just wants to sort of make it happen. And I think this was one of the key early points for me in that workshop. You need to know who you are, but then you need to recognise how that relates to the personality types of other people. I know that I flick really between being a bit introverted sometimes and a bit extroverted at other times. And I know that I can get frustrated in meetings when people aren't communicating or where they're not talking or where I'm struggling to get things out of them. But that's just their personality. That's not them being difficult or tricky. That's just the way in which they communicate. I'm extremely extroverted and I have to be very mindful that I don't fill the silence with my ideas, that I give my more introverted colleagues the opportunity to think through what's been asked and then have the opportunity to respond in their own time. Often introverts are the people who really make things happen. They're more the finishers, whereas the extroverts tend to come up with the ideas. So it's really good to know what what is the balance in your team or in your department and to always play to people's strengths. And another key that I took from the workshop was that good teams have a balance of all these different types of personality. You can't just have one type a room full of extroverts would be absolutely exhausting and you need to have these balances. Now, there are other personality types as well and it may be worth just flicking through a couple of those. These aren't necessarily aligned with being introverted or extroverted, but even things about people who want to get it right and people who just want to get it done. So sometimes there's a task that needs to be done in the department, whether it's writing a protocol or coming up with an idea, even what to do at the Christmas party. The people who want to get it right 
really want to take a little bit of time to think it through, to have a play with it, maybe to get consensus around the room, whereas others just want to get it done. They don't want to have tasks hanging over their head and they're they're quite good at finishing. So in any group, it's good to have a combination of people who want to get it right and get it done because hopefully it means the job does get done, but it gets done in a way that's actually really effective and is going to work. Think about yourself. Think about what sort of a person you are when you're in a team or when you're communicating within the group. And look around you and remember that these different styles, there's not really a good and a bad style. There's just different styles and you need to learn to appreciate those. And if you're going to be a good team leader or a good communicator, then you need to recognize those different styles. Now, Liz, you came at the end of the workshop to talk about some quick tips, some simple things that I thought would be really useful if we share with everyone on the podcast that maybe we could just whiz through now for people to think about. But please remember, this is just the beginning of being a good communicator. We can't do that in a quick podcast. You need to go away and think about these things. And as I say, Liz's workshops are excellent if you ever get a chance to go to that or a similar type one organized in your area. So Liz, what were those quick tips we talked about? Um, the first one we're going to talk about is signposting. It's really when you're communicating something, whether you're giving a talk or you're making sure that the loop has been closed prior to a trauma coming in and you want to know who's got the jobs. It's where you're going to repeatedly highlight a point and let them know that you're going to come back to it. So in a family conversation, if you were talking with a family, you might express to them that, The first thing is you're really concerned, then give reasons why you're concerned and you might go through, you know, neurology, airway, etc. Then go back to saying you remain concerned. So if the number one message you want to give a family is you're concerned and you're not sure of the prognosis, you want to say that several times. It's the exact same thing in any sort of meeting. If there are things that you absolutely need people to finish or understand that you signpost them throughout the conversation. And we do that throughout our communication in both hospital and in personal life. And we do it with teaching as well. So that idea that throughout a teaching session, we'll repeat a certain important point, beginning, middle and end to really try and get through that message that we think is so important. So we're going to try and signpost in our communication the bits that are really important. The next one I think you said was to keep but out of it. Essentially, whenever you're trying to join with someone or you're trying to express that you've understood and that they've really been heard, if you put the word but in the sentence, it really eliminates everything that you've said beforehand. So if you were saying, I had a really great time with you, but it was a little bit annoying when you did blah, it means that really you haven't had a great time. What we would suggest, this takes an awful amount of discipline and I must say I'm not there yet, but to eliminate the word but from your vocabulary really changes things. So if you are having a fight with your partner, for instance, and you're saying, I really love spending time with you, you're a terrific person, but it really annoys me that I feel like you always have to have your own way, that can be remarkably changed by just substituting the word but for the word and. So if you said, look, I really enjoy spending time with you, I had a really good time, and I'm wondering if we could talk about the fact that you always seem to have want your own way because it's it's not dismissing the first part of the sentence or the or the paragraph. It's still saying you enjoyed your, your time. However, you'd really like to explore something else. It just keeps the lines of communication open. So we really recommend in keeping the word but out of conversation. Such a simple thing, but even those brief examples there highlight how different that word can make things seem. And it's certainly something I'm going to try that either adding in an and or just using a full stop and starting a new sentence. There was the phrase, everything before the but is, well, rubbish is the phrase. I think it was slightly ruder than that. But I think that's important to remember. So 
Signposting, we've said, is important, keeping that clear message, and then we're going to try and keep but out of it. What was the next thing, Liz? In relation to any really important or difficult conversation, the first and last thing you say are paramount, really. That's all often people remember, especially when people are really stressed. So if you have to have a difficult conversation, even with a colleague, you have to remember that the first and last things you say are going to be the most memorable, the things that are going to stick. And I think, again, this is where people often come undone. Imagine that you have to have a difficult conversation with a colleague. They're not performing enough. They're not doing enough that they're going to be able to pass exams. If you want to have that conversation, you have to set the whole thing up right from the start that it's going to be difficult. So doing things like saying, let's have a coffee and go and have a conversation, immediately says this is a casual or informal or it's just something that I have to do. Whereas if you say I'd like you to meet in my office and you keep the environment formal, then people understand that they're in, that, it, that it is a serious conversation. First things that you do, the first way you communicate to them, and that can be with your body and your face as well as your verbal intention, is what's really going to set the filter for how they understand things. So if you walk in the room and you say, hi, Ian, how are you going? How was your weekend? What are you doing? Listen, I just need to have a conversation with you about your pending exams. I'm a bit concerned. The whole way that you're going to receive that information is through a filter of friendliness, happiness, that we're good mates, everything's going to be okay. It's very different than if I walked in and said, Ian, I appreciate you taking the time to meet with me. I'm afraid we're going to have a really difficult conversation now about how you're preparing for your exams and what your future career holds. That's going to set a filter that everything I say, you're going to receive that information knowing that it's a serious conversation. The last things we say are also really important because people, when they get stressed, tend to lose the whole middle phase of what has been said. If I have a really serious conversation with you, And then I finish it off by saying, but you know what, Ian, you're a great bloke and I'm sure you're going to be okay. Then everything I've said prior gets melded into a, I'm still a great bloke. I'm probably going to be okay. I don't need to be concerned. It's almost part of your signposting, but the first and last things that you say mean everything. So really, when you're finishing a difficult conversation, sometimes it's even worth saying to families who are particularly stressed in summary, or I guess the thing... The take-home message from this is, Ian, I'm very concerned currently that you're not going to pass your exams, that you won't be moving on to your next position. You need to be thinking of alternatives or way that you can turn this around very quickly. Because if you try to finish things on a high, which lots of people do because they don't like conflict, the message is going to be lost. I think that's a really important message for many of us who we don't like conflict generally. We like people to think well of us. We don't like to get into those difficult communication environments. And these are just those tips and hints to try and make sure that you move forward. One of the major features from the SMAC conference about how we communicate seems to be that actually if you tackle the difficult subjects and you talk about them, then actually life does get better. The stuff that you leave and you don't talk about and it just festers under the surface the whole time can become really toxic and actually can destroy team morale and can destroy your relationship with your patient. So these are ways in which you can have these difficult conversations and move forward. So the first and last things you say are really important. There was something also about how you chunk information and use silence. If we go back to an example of families, when you're having any sort of conversation with families who we have to remember are always vulnerable and likely to be quite stressed and sleep deprived, that it's really worthwhile to chunk information up 
and also to allow pauses, opportunity to digest, opportunity for families to receive the information, for them to reflect on your body language and what you've just said, and also opportunity for them to then ask questions. So an example of that might be if you were going to give information in relation to a diagnosis, you might come in and say, I'm afraid I've got some really serious news. Pause. That sets the whole conversation up for everything that comes behind, just like we've said about the beginning and the end. As you're aware, your father was having some tests and those have now come back. Our main concern is that we have seen this, this and this and this is what it's likely to mean. People feel really uncomfortable with pauses but pauses really allow people of an opportunity to take a bit of a breath It also allows you to really gather your thoughts so that you're not just rambling on. You're really taking the time yourself to make sure that what you do say is accurate, clear, concise, and in a language that the family can really appreciate. So it's really worth chunking things up into small little sections and then allowing some pause or some silence. Even now, I can imagine people listening to this podcast and those silences which you put in there were barely a couple of seconds long and I can feel the discomfort of people wondering whether they should change the podcast or move on. We really don't like silences, dead air we'd call it on the radio or on a podcast. We have to get used to letting those silences sit and letting the discomfort sit in those rooms, especially with the difficult communication that we have to have. We've covered this a bit in previous podcasts and it's worth listening back to those because these Topics all interweave and they will link together. So the more you do about this, the more you'll see that there's a common theme running through them. So we're going to use chunking, putting bits of information together, and then we're going to use silence when it's appropriate. Not to make people feel uncomfortable, but just to let the information sit and just be fine with the fact we don't have to rush through. Also, the idea that you're rushing families and others can feel that you just don't have the time for them. So just pause. They will imagine that that time is actually a lot longer than it really is. There's all sorts of information about how if you sit down, families think you're spending longer with them, even though you don't. These little bits and pieces will help your communication. There's a platinum rule, Liz. Yeah, the platinum rule is really about staying attuned to whoever you're speaking with. And that's about really connecting with them. And look, I know that people are pushed for time. But what I keep emphasising is if you communicate really well, you will actually spend shorter amounts of time with your families, um, the patients that you're working with, and they will feel more satisfied. You know, we were really trying to teach this in the communication workshop that if you start things off well with families, they're so forgiving of you. You know, it won't matter if it then takes you five times to get a cannula in. If you've started at a saying, good evening, I'm really sorry to meet you under these circumstances. You've obviously had a rough night. What is it that brings you here? And then anything goes wrong, they'll be like, that doctor was so nice, that nurse was so caring, that they're just a lot more forgiving. Once you've done something wrong, it's much harder to come back from that. And so the platinum rule is really attuning and sitting with people where they're actually at. And often people are saying, you know, I don't know how much information to give families, particularly at really traumatic times or when they first walked in the door of the ED. One of the great things you can just say is, How much information would you like or how do you like to receive information? Are you someone that likes all the details or do you just want us to paint the big picture at this stage? Because it's also very empowering for families to have actually some level of control. But the platinum rule is really about 
working out what families, how they like to communicate, what sort of information they want to receive, giving them the opportunity to ask some some questions, but really staying attuned to where they are. The more efficient you become in that, the less time you'll probably end up spending with them, but the more meaningful it will be for them. One of the other things that came through at SMAC very strongly was this idea that we all feel very busy. We all feel like we don't have much time. In fact, being busy is the new trendy thing. As soon as you ask anybody, what, oh, I'm so busy. I'm just so busy. The thing with communication is, is that if you get this right, we know that the majority of complaints in hospital where patients, their families feel dissatisfied with care aren't to do with the standard of medicine they receive or the quality of the medical care. It's about the communication that's taken place. And anyone who's listening to this who's been involved in responding to complaints will know just how much time those take up, not least the distress caused to everybody involved. So these few extra minutes using your time effectively at the time, you may feel busy. You may have lots of patients to see. The department might be heaving. You might have had a bad day. But just an extra couple of minutes not only helps you get the message across, but actually is a time saver in the long run. As Liz says, if you set these things up properly, the time you spend with the family at the moment you need to talk to them could itself even be shorter. We're always looking for efficiencies. We're looking to get more effective. These are all hints and tips that will help with that, as well as meaning that we get on better with our patients. We look after them and we care for their families better, too. There's a couple more rules, Liz. We'll just whiz through those quickly. Optimum bias or miracles, what do we do when people just really are in a space where they can't hear that perhaps things aren't going to go well or that the diagnosis is going to be confirmed or perhaps that it's time to start having conversations about end-of-life care? We've talked about this previously in podcasts and I've also talked about it in previous smack talks. You can never fight with God. You don't want to set yourself up in a situation where someone's really waiting for a miracle, hoping that things are going to be turned around. It's all right to say to people and join with them in that but not deny the science. So to say, we would love to see a miracle, you know, it'd be such an amazing thing. We know that you really love your grandfather a lot and we'd really love to think that there's a chance he could recover. However, all the science at the moment is indicating to us that that's not going to be the case. How can we support you to sit in that space of hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst? We never, ever want to get in a situation where we're actually in conflict with our families. It's not going to resolve the issue. So it's much more important that to acknowledge when people's faith or their hope or their optimism bias is sitting in the room, but not to deny the science. We all hope for miracles, I think. If we have family members or people that we care about and love are going through these horrible times, we pray for miracles and you search the internet and you can find them. Our responsibility as the, if you like, scientists within this conversation is to remain pragmatic and practical and keep families grounded in the reality. Yes, there are sometimes these things that happen, but really we have to deliver as best we can the most likely outcomes and explain those as gently as we can in order to ease the path for whatever comes next. But I I don't think it's about eliminating hope. We don't need to eliminate hope. We don't need to eliminate people's desire for a miracle. I think we can sit in that space with them, not denying the science, in a way that we're able to just say, we want this for you and whatever comes next, we're going to remain connected with you without judgment, without criticism, and we're going to facilitate you negotiating those next steps. Lastly, I think it's always important to stay connected. For those people who have heard me speak before, I'm 
often say, look, we can't cure everyone, but we absolutely do have the opportunity to connect with every individual that we come in touch with. And for some families, that's a hell of a lot more challenging than for others. But on the whole, it's not about the outcome. We need to remain really focused on the process. And when we get the process right, then the outcome, it's not that it's irrelevant, but for those families, if they feel like that we made a connection, that they were important at the time, then everything will have gone to the best of our ability. So this is just a quick podcast to try and bring together what is a whole day's workshop into a few thoughts for you to take away and think about. The real thing I want to get across is is that try and know who you are and recognise in others that they may be different to you. That's not a bad thing. That's not wrong. In fact, it's a strength. But you need to work out how to communicate as a team. We can be more overt in the way we discuss these things. Talk to your colleagues about it. Don't just sit there festering and fuming in a corner thinking, well, why doesn't that person shut up? That's not probably their fault. It's because that's just who they are. And you need to guide those conversations through. And that counts for when you're with patients and families too. I hope you found this useful. The workshop that Liz does with Steve is hugely impressive and really educational. If you get the chance to do anything like that, I'd strongly encourage it. I certainly came away very thoughtful about my methods of communication and hoping that when I get back to the shop floor, it's going to really help me with the way I relate to patients.